This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to talk about how the wine stays in the bottle, or more specifically, what keeps it in there. A cork, a screw top, a piece of duct tape. No duct tape. No duct tape. You know, so there goes my bottling because I've been trying duct tape. All right. Do you care what what is used to keep that wine in the bottle? Maybe, maybe you don't. That's what we're going to talk about today, and we'll take some questions as always, give you some food and wine picks, and we've got another round of really horrible wine writing. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And this is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are guys who both teach some wine. We teach it to regular folks. For some reason, they take classes from us. Paul, (laughs) I don't know why. But we both get this kind of question a lot, which is, Cork versus screw cap. Which one Which one is the winner? So that's where we're going to start today. What's the difference? Is there a difference? What works best for what wines? I I have screwy puns. I've got corky yeah, puns. i got no go good there. puns. We're no not doing puns. No puns No puns. Allowed. It is one of the rules of the show. If you are new to uh, Bottle no Talk, puns allowed. Ball, no puns allowed, which doesn't mean we don't necessarily follow our own rules. <laughs> cork screws, cork screw tops, corks. Yeah. Well, see— Get me started. So here's here's the thing. First of all, you have to understand, what is the purpose of a closure? And I'm and, thinking it's to keep the wine in. Well, yes and no. It's to keep the wine in. And keep the air out. And keep the air out. Yeah. And then the third thing is, ultimately, it's supposed to allow you to get at what's in the bottle. I thought it was to argue over. No, no, no. That's later. Okay. So, so what happens when air gets into wine? And here's where it gets a little complicated because as wine ages, those of us who have drunk— really good older wines will tell you that corks allow just a tiny little bit of air to get in the wine over time. It it actually doesn't come from the seal. It actually comes from a little bit of the cork right there close to the wine. That helps the wine age the same way wine ages in a barrel. That air helps the wine mature, soften, gain complexity. I'm well aired, by the way. You are well aired, and you are pretty corked. Yeah. (laughs) So... When you start talking about these alternative closures, the question is, what is your actual goal? It turns out that a screw cap, an aluminum screw cap, makes an almost perfect seal so that the wine that goes in the bottle, when it gets a screw cap, it comes out six months, a year, two years later, and it has virtually no air interaction. Tastes very fresh, tastes very clean, very pure, no problems, no technical problems at all. But for some people, that isn't the goal. Well, exactly. If your goal is to make wines that are to age and you want that development in the bottle, the screw cap doesn't actually give you as much of that as the cork does. Now, the cork is a little unpredictable because it's a natural product. So you and I both had the experience of opening two older bottles of wine, and they taste a little different. That's known as bottle variation. Happens with corks, doesn't happen with screw caps. The third option is these artificial plastic stoppers, the synthetic corks. Um, They allow a little more oxygen, so those aren't really a good solution for wines you're going to age for 30 years or even five years. But for a wine that you're going to drink in the next two months, they work reasonably well. The truth is all of these closures now work pretty well for short-term aging. 
And for long-term aging, it's really a question of what you want. There's no simple answer. Right. And one of the things that we ought to sort of step uh, – well, you should uh, – Step in? Step, I was going to – well, yeah, I was going to step in the problem. Well, we stepped in well, it we now. Stipulate is the word. Ooh. We should stipulate um, – I like that word, huh? Yeah, I, that's a good word. Yeah. yeah. That for people who are buying wine, like most people buy and drink wine, which is buying a bottle, taking it home, drinking it. Right. Or maybe – Keep it for a week, or maybe right. even keep it for a month. There's not going to be a lot of difference. This is right. nothing, not something that matters to you, right? Unless the pop matters, and that is actually something that does matter. Actually, sometimes. matters. The, yes, the tradition of getting it open versus yes. getting get you know opening it yourself, and and so those are. I mean, look, wine is many many things, and part of it is the fun of pulling out a bottle of wine and opening it if that is your fun. Well, and if and you, so that's have, okay you invite the woman of your dreams to your place for dinner and you pull out the bottle. It's more romantic to hear the pop than it is to hear the, you know, of the screw cap. I have a friend. I'm going to give him credit. Christopher Sawyer. Chris Sawyer, who was a oh, long-time yeah. Bay Area sommelier, yeah, great yeah. guy. Good guy. Has perfected the very showy open. And what he does is he, he cracks the open, the the, uh, the, screw, the screw cap, cap just yeah. a little bit. Uh-huh. And then he rolls it down his arm. And it flies up and into the air. And it flies up the air and he catches oh, it. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And that's nice. And it's, uh, you got to, it's, I've, I've tried it a few times. I I've tried it with uh, with the stupidly I tried it with wine in the bottle. Um, it's you don't want to know the answer. Really. <laughs> you know, and by the way, we've there's. So how did that wine look on your shirt? It's it, well, that's why I wear dark colors. <laughs> that's one of my rules. Of I wine. will Always say this: dark when colors. I teach classes and I do a tasting, and I've got a you know I got a classroom of fifty students, and we're tasting ten wines, so I've probably got twenty twenty five bottles to open to taste through over the course of a three hour class. When I look down that row of bottles and I see the screw caps, I smile because, man, know. I know. when you're opening a lot of wine in a hurry, the I, screw cap is just I, so much easier. Same thing. I do events, and I've got a couple yeah. of cases of wine stacked up, and I, I, you do the math on how much more time it's going to take. having said that, walk into my cellar, as you have done, and look at the bottles in my cellar and look at the ones that I've chosen to age for some future occasion. I don't think there were many screw caps in there. Right. Yeah. I, I want to uh, get back to your cellar in a minute uh, and, and screw caps. Yeah, because, you'd like to get in my well, cellar Well, I would, again. actually. There's some good wine down there. Uh, well, less now because of the <laughs> yeah, earthquake. Right. But no, I'm just being mean. <laughs> Paul lives in Napa, if people don't know. Yes. Uh, but I wanted to actually get to this. Uh, there was a survey um, that, well, a research that done by Wine Intelligence. Wine Intelligence mm-hmm. is yep. an international marketing company. Good people. Good numbers. Uh, they're always reliable. And, yep. and here's what they found. In, in, the, in England, in UK, actually, all UK, that uh, uh, screw cap versus cork, it's like 50-50. It's 40% were, liked up. it, 40% didn't, the rest yep. no preference. In Australia, yeah. 55% like it, yep. 38% don't. And That's uh, the screw cap. So actually, they prefer, in Australia, they prefer screw caps over corks. Yes, yes. And yep. most of, many of their wines, most of their wines, actually. Yep. In the U.S., just 21% of us like screw caps. 64% are corks. Right. So what does that say about us? Are we insecure? Is that what it is? We just don't trust our own judgments? No, I think we like the ritual. Part of wine and part of what makes wine different from beer is there is this ritual of opening. And you made a joke about the pop, but that's part of the enjoyment of wine. And it is... Uh, it you know to to me a, a formal dinner setting you invite the boss to dinner or something that pop is a way of saying there is pleasure in here that's not available through other beverages unless you can roll it down your arm I yeah. don't know yeah. I I do too but I do think that um, I I think that while Americans are as a nation now the leading wine consuming nation yes. we are not a high 
percentage of wine drinkers of right. wine educated, and I do right. think that twenty percent of the of Americans drink most of the wine, like ninety percent of the maybe wine. Maybe the twenty percent that are okay with the screw caps. But <laughs> I think that it is also a matter of education where folks just feel that screw cap is going to signify uh, lack of quality, and and we need to point out that there are some. Uh, Plump Jack is a good example. They uh, very expensive, very right. good Napa Valley Cabernet, and they and half of their Cabernet comes. This is one hundred sixty five. In fact, they charge pounds. slightly more for the one with a screw cap. Do they really? Well, yeah, as a way of and communicating. We're, t- we're talking over hundred dollars. We're talking yep. in the, and and it's good wine. And so it doesn't necessarily mean the wine is bad. Um, it does. It just often is just a matter of preference. Yeah, you know the. But there are things that that we have seen, and well, actually, there's the other one that I like is this. The other test, or they've been done some tests on the differences. Yep. Um, and there's two, and Plump Jack was involved, by the mm-hmm. way. Yep. And UC yep. Davis, they took 200 bottles of each, 600 total, of a Sauvignon Blanc, and and Sauvignon Blanc is probably a good wine because you're going to drink it when it's young. Yeah. And they took. Natural cork, synthetic cork, and screw cap. And the rates of oxidation were what you expected. Mm-hmm. Almost nil in screw caps, a right. little in natural, more in— In the uh, synthetics. In this, in, no, yeah. me, a little in synthetic, more in cork, the most in cork. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that—so, you know, it's the, the cork has the most air exchange— um, and the other, the other study that I like actually is that Chateau Margaux, which is one of the great wineries in Bordeaux in France, they've been running a test for now more than ten years. Mm-hmm. They were ten years in in 2012, and at 2012, where they have this, their great, you know, Bordeaux blends, this right. Cabernet blends. These are wines that sell for five hundred, a thousand plus dollars a bottle. Right. They decided that they still couldn't tell. They, uh-huh. It was too soon to tell. Wow. you got to love the French sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Know, too soon to tell. Yeah. But it does tell you that it is, is both a matter of preference and there is some variation and and all sorts of things that go on with the, the screw caps. We got a question from our engineer, Matt Bassini. Uh-huh. He said, so what if you put wax on, the, on, the, on, your, on cork? your cork? Would it seal it more? Yeah, wax isn't actually very impermeable to air. So I don't think it would change much. I, th- I think uh, you know the old the old um, wine bottles used to be sealed that way. They, the cork actually wasn't very long and very good, and it wasn't very round, and the bottle wasn't very accurate. I mean, these were all handmade items, and so they would dip them in that wax in a in a way to make a slightly better seal. But compared to the technology we have today, it's a pretty small difference that you'd see. See, this is where I'm going back to duct tape. I well, you know. <clears throat> It, it has its uses. Right. So I, know, I hope we had a little clarity there, which is to say that, that the, the screw cap seals it better. Uh, the cork has some oxygen exchange for wines, especially white wines that you're going to drink pretty quickly. That fresh wine is a, is a pretty good way to go with a screw cap. Don't let it bother you. If you're going to age a wine, you probably want a cork. It's probably going to have a yeah, better Yeah, but in the end, experience. I think what we have to say is that the closure is no longer a foolproof way to determine the quality of the that wine. That is absolutely In true. fact, that there are really good wines made with all of these closures, and they all function. Frankly, because of the competition between them, the performance of all of these closures has improved over the last 10 years, and they all do a pretty good job. Right. And we should also stipulate that foolproof is not often a phrase you can hear around either Paul or I. <laughs> That's true. You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. Up next, it's going to time be time to open the mailbag and take a few questions from listeners. Stay with us.
listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open our mailbag and take some questions. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the air, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, rickandpaulwine.com. Our first question comes from Anthony Van Hook in Sacramento. I know Anthony, and he's a young guy, and he's a smart guy. And so his question is a very legitimate one, and it tells you something about the wine business in a way. His question was, a friend gave me a bottle of wine. I don't know anything about wine. I just know it's red. What am I supposed to do with it? He went on to talk about he wasn't sure whether he was supposed to have it with meat or how to get smell it or what other you know all he was confused you mean he hasn't somebody, been he hasn't been taught the catechism of wine exactly right and my first reaction was wine industry shame on you <laughs> that a smart young guy like anthony should feel like he could do something wrong with a bottle right, of wine right it's you know anthony it, it's simple there are two ends to the bottle one's got a cork in it or perhaps a screw cap open that end pour some in a glass taste it if you like it Drink the rest of the bottle with yourself, even better, with a friend. If you don't like it, thank the person who gave it to you. Pour it down the sink. Move on. Open part of the glass, by the way, Anthony, just in case. That's right. That's, the, no. it's, that's it. It really is. And this is the thing for anyone at any level of wine, which is that don't make it too complicated. You don't have to worry about doing the wrong thing. And you don't have to about doing the wrong thing whether you're opening your first bottle of wine or whether you're at some fancy meal where there's very expensive wine. You get to decide whether you like it on your own. You get to, If you don't like it, don't drink it. You know, I have the perfect solution for Anthony. Beer? Re-gifting. There you go. Somebody gave him a bottle of wine. Well, he doesn't know what to do with it. All he has to do is say, present it as a gift to somebody else. Say, this was given to me by a dear friend. It, who knows? Yeah, but, but Anthony wasn't sure it was a good wine. Ooh. So you didn't want to give somebody a bad wine. Well, See, this is the trap. This, just yeah. drink it, my you pal. Know, drink you know, it, my friend. Malcolm you'll Forbes, like it. Yeah, yeah. Malcolm Forbes used to say, when he, and he had a fabulous cellar, and he'd give people wine all the time. He'd give them a bottle to try this. But he always said, don't tell me if you liked it. Because he said, if you tell me that you loved it, I'll think, man, I shouldn't have given him that bottle. That was a good one. <laughs> and if you tell me you don't like it, I'll either think, oh, man, that bottle must have gone bad or... That guy's an idiot. Yeah. So there's no good response to that. Just drink it. Don't tell me about it. See, I'm with Malcolm Forbes on the first <laughs> half. Just drink it. Well, no, you know, I don't want to know that they really loved it because then I'll feel bad. But if <laughs> I gave them a, a wine they hated, I'm thinking to myself, whew, got away with one. I didn't have to drink it. <laughs> um, well, you, again, it's into a whole other topic, which is when you give somebody a bottle yeah. of wine, you're invited to their house, you give them the wine, do they open it? And there's one that, you know, when you give them the wine, it's their wine. I think that is a very good point to be made, which is that's exactly right. If you're bringing a bottle of wine for dinner to somebody else's house and you hand them over the wine, they don't, they are not required to open it at the meal. It's their wine. It is their wine. They can do anything they want with it. In fact, I frequently hand them the bottle of wine and tell them this would be really good with something other than what we're having tonight. I don't need to drink this wine. I have this wine. This is for you. Yeah. I didn't bring this wine so that we could open it and everyone could tell me what a great wine it was. Well, if somebody brings me a wine that doesn't go with a meal, I, I, I hand them a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want them to walk away empty-handed, but if I'm going to—no, I'm right. just funning. All right. We have the next question. This one is from Julie Bailey in Walnut Creek. Mm. She says, when I don't finish a bottle, what's the best way to store it? Now, I, I got to say— Rick, I don't understand. I don't understand the question. You <laughs> Does not compute. What? Don't finish a bottle of wine, <laughs> Julie, Julie. You're gonna have to explain this one to me a little bit more. No, actually, you know, a good friend of mine is one of the few people in the world who's both a master sommelier and a master of wine. 
a guy by the name of Ron Wiegand, and he writes about wine. He's quite the world expert. And he did a whole series of tests on this, and he came up with what he claims is the perfect solution. I want to know because I'm going to tell you about the series of tests that I did for a story once, which is not nearly going to be as extensive or as well-informed. Okay. But what did, so what did he say? He basically said the best solution is to decant it into a smaller bottle as as uh, as, as small a bottle as, as the wine will fit sure. into, and put it in your freezer. Your freezer. Now, don't do wow. this with champagne. No, sparkling no. wine. Okay. You will end up with a loaded hand grenade in your freezer that is likely to explode. But he said that actually worked for two, three, four weeks for him. Um, well, so he was keeping it. So, see, this is for most of us. It's to drink the next night or two nights later. Right. No, he was actually seeing how long he ah. could keep a wine like this, and it would still taste basically as good as when he opened it. And that was his solution. So I did a story a couple of years ago. Here's what I did. I had um, opened a couple of bottles of uh, red. I can't remember what the red was, but I think it was a Zin because okay. I'm thinking lots of people drink Zin. And I know it was a bottle of a Chardonnay. Same. We had a, a, yep. opened a couple of bottles. Here's what I did with all of them. I, I poured them. Uh, the my old newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, was paying for this. Excellent. Um, so I poured half of them out. So there's half the bottle left. You didn't pour them out. You not drank all them. of them, but most of them. <laughs> um, and uh, and so half the bottle left. I put a cork in the red and the white and put them on the counter. Right. I put a cork in the red and the white and I put, put it them in the fridge. In the, fr- in the fridge. I yeah. put I, I the little thing where you pump the air out, which is a very right. common thing. And I yep. on each th- and I put them on a counter. Yep. I put the the red the red and the white where I pump the air out to yep. make a vacuum inside and put them in the fridge. Right. Here's what I found. The white that I like the best, and my wife, who frankly has a much better palate than I do, mm. she liked the best, was the white with the cork in the fridge. Mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. found that it stayed yeah. the freshest, that for some reason the the ones with the wine pumped out of them seemed to have lost something for some reason. Huh. It just They were a little flatter. Yep. Um, and I like the, the, um, the red with the air pumped out in the fridge. Uh-huh. But then warmed up afterward, you know. So in both yeah. cases, in the fridge. In the fridge. And, yeah. So cold, I think, matters. Although, yes, any chemist will tell you that if your fridge is too cold, the wine ultimately reaches about around thirty-four, thirty-six degrees, and you start getting super oxygenation, which can oxidize your well, wine. Really and your quickly. refrigerator should never be below thirty-seven. By well, the way, well, there yeah. you go. Mm-hmm. Um, what you didn't mention are a couple of other options, which is pouring them in a smaller bottle. But you need to have a smaller bottle, which requires having a smaller. Yeah, bottle. but that's a great excuse to go out and buy a few half bottles of wine. That's and drink true. Them. Because then you got those sitting around. And then the other thing you didn't mention were these various products where you can actually spray an inert gas, gas them, into right, the right. wine. What I'm going to guess is going to act a lot like pumping the air out if you did a good <clears> job. Yes, yeah, sort of. Although I think it's pretty, I, I think you can argue that the inert gas is heavier and it will actually do a better job. But the real question can I, is: Can I do what the ancient Greeks did and just fill it with olive oil? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pour a little, and and in a couple of months, you'll have the perfect salad dressing. That's right. But the real question: This is Julie in Walnut Creek. Julie does not want to have to buy equipment. She doesn't want to have to put buy. the corks in them, stick them in the fridge. She just right. wants to save the wine for a couple of days and put a cork in it. Pop it in the fridge should be okay. Although that little pump thing, if you do drink, Julie, if you do drink more than one bottle a week, um, 
uh, or a day, as some of us do. No, if if you drink, uh, if you drink, and you know the the little the little pump with the little plastic corks, they're not very expensive. I think uh, a couple of corks in the pump might be fifteen bucks. So it's not like you're something investing. to play with for the holidays. Right. And if you could figure out how to get them to shoot, that would be even better. There you uh, go. All right, and we have uh, one more. And he didn't leave his name. He emailed us and didn't get his name. But I'm going to ask the question anyway for him. Um, this is an anonymous. It question? was. I, I'm thinking to him. No, it was. A, yes, it was an email without. It was you know numbers on the email. Oh, yes. And, yes. And I was. BTM I, I did not email back. But I liked the question, and so I. Yeah. I should have. I should have contacted him first. He says I keep hearing about wines named after places. How does that work? Well, uh. there it's actually a little more complicated than I'm, I'm about to make it, and Paul will tell you the, the real reason. But but it is fundamentally that in Europe, wines are named, named after regions, and in the U.S., wines are named after the grape. You can see in the U.S. why it works better. For example, if you had oh, a lovely Michael David Zinfandel from Lodi, instead of a glass of Zin, you would have a glass of Lodi. Yeah, that's not as Doesn't tasty. Work. Doesn't yeah. Would Even though Lodi open? is actually named for yeah. an Italian wine region, but it's yeah. pronounced Lodi. E- over even there. even even a, gl- a glass of Sonoma. A glass well, of you Napa can have a glass of Napa though. I mean, yeah. Napa's a yeah. that's a marketable brand. You can still... have a, give me a glass of Napa. Eh, yeah. I, I don't know. It still sounds like you're drinking <laughs> beer. Um, but it, it the actually the, the the places mean something more in many regions too. It actually well, it's it defines because, something. You know, if you look at many places in Europe, they've been growing grapes and making wine there for a couple of thousand years. So they have developed very specific traditions. And frankly, in many of these regions, they've not only developed specific grapes they grow there, but they have regulations that say you can only grow these grapes this way in this region. So when you order a bottle of Rioja from Spain, you know you're getting a wine that is primarily Tempranillo. It's grown a certain way. It's made a certain way. It spends a certain amount of time in oak. And it's going to have a certain kind of character to it, a certain flavor to it. So that makes a lot of sense. If you were to go to Rioja, Rick, if you were to go to Rioja. I have been to Rioja. And you were to say, great, I'm going to start a winery in Rioja and I'm going to make Zinfandel. The boys from the government, not the, throw me out. not the local people, the, the government would tell you, you can make wine here. You can grow Zinfandel. But you can't put the name you on. You cannot put Rioja anywhere on that label because that ain't Rioja. So in short, and this is this is why it actually means something, but it's also why wine is confusing, is that these place names from Europe actually are like a brand. They are yes. telling you something about the wine. The downside yes. is you need to know what that coding is, and this is one of the reasons why wine can be so confusing, which is also why you should just listen to us, and we'll, we'll tell you. We'll solve all your problems. That's what we do. Although uh, I, I do need to say one more thing about the, the European place names, which is that in this country, if you make Rick and Paul's Zinfandel— Which if, would be delicious. Yeah, I'm sure it would be. If someone were to make a Rick and Paul's Chardonnay next door— it would be our responsibility as the owners of the trademark to sue those people and tell we, them to we, stop copying us. We would send them a nasty letter, as often happens in the U.S., but yes. In Europe, if someone makes a bottle of Chianti Classico and it is not authentically Chianti Classico, he is prosecuted by the government. The government protects these names, not the individual regions or the wineries. Which just goes to show how seriously they take their they wine. They take it seriously. Well, we take it seriously and we take it for fun. But we are zipping up the mailbag until the second half of the show. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, really horrible wine writing and lots more. Stay with us. 
listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Every week we bring you some really horrible wine writing because, well, we want people who don't have access to the stuff to suffer as much as we do sometimes. It's a feature we call... Really Horrible Wine Writing. How about that? Are, How about are, that? Are we not clever? <laughs> now, Paul, what have you suffered through lately that you brought us? Well, you know, a, a couple of uh, shows ago, I read a uh, review by a guy who noted that in his beautiful red wine, there were aromas and flavors of pickled beets and sweet it relish. It made my little little taste buds water. Oh, well, yeah. Here's one for you. Ruby color, aromas of cherry preserves, watermelon ice, and nut brittle. With a silky, dry, yet fruity medium body and a juicy, mouth-watering, glazed citrus and, wait for it, pickled beet finish. So this guy likes pickled beets. And here's the best part. Those are two different wines. Oh, my Lord. He gets pickled beets in two different kinds of wines. So wait a minute, because my head hurts. So he's got... got Pickled beets. He's got watermelon ice, Lord. Nut brittle. Nut brittle. So yeah. this is brown tasting. I don't know, but, but this what, isn't what going in my mouth. What were some of the other mouth. flavors? This isn't going in was, my was mouth. Was there any like dark fruit flavors um, in there? Glazed citrus. Glazed citrus. So this has got to be a white Cherry wine. preserves. Cherry? Yeah. It's like a it's like a bad rosé. I have no idea what this wine mm. is. Pinot Noir, apparently. Ugh. Oh, well, save me from the pickled Pinot Noir. Um, well, well, mine is, a, is our a, next food and wine pairing. What to serve mine with is pickled a, is beets? A, is a tor- terribly horrible direction in the other way. This is from a winery. This is their website. Oh, this dear. is them advertising to you. They're telling you why you should drink this wine. Yes, they want you to buy this wine, and I need to read this. Um, feel fr- feel free to go grab an aspirin now. Okay. The vineyard was planted in... I'm going to cut, actually, sentences out of this so that you won't. (laughs) But the vineyard was planted... This is the wine we're talking... The vineyard was planted in 1997 under our guidance in vineyard management and was recently acquired in full, because I really care about that. Yeah. 11 acres are planted to a mix of Dijon 115 and 667, with five acres of Pomard coming into production in 2011. The lots underwent a cold soak of five to seven days before being slowly allowed to come up in temperature and inoculated with RC212 yeast. During fermentations, their cap were punched down four times per day with an occasional aerated pump over the 115 clone tanks were barreled down. they punch down and they aerated pump over in the same wine? In the same wine. Rick, this is shocking oh, stuff. Do you have any idea what they're talking Emma's about? Emma's the I have no idea. And they we goes on with does the this not, and does the tanks this, and the Does this not bring to mind the fact that it is somehow the wine industry believes it is impossible to understand and appreciate the music of Elton John without knowing how to build a piano? Yes, yes. What is wrong with I, these well, people? You know, I, I was going to a concert the other day, but I didn't know how they made it a guitar, and so I didn't go. <laughs> um, the, you know, it is... This is this this same winery, by the way, um, one of their bottles of wine... Now, I've always argued, you know, as the guy who sort of wants people to sell their wine and have done some consulting with some marketing right, companies... Right, right. That, ...that if you can get somebody to pick up your bottle... And look at it. And look at it, you yeah, are... You you're may, home free. You're, well, no, you're like 95% of the yeah, way yeah. there, or maybe yeah, yeah. 90%. Yeah. But give them a reason to buy the wine on the back label right. by saying something accurate and delicious about the wine. Right. You know what they had on the back of the bottle? The clone. Oh, yeah. Like anybody oh, yeah. knows. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't know what the... Uh, RC two one two yeast was. 
It oh, was yeah. the yeast. I'm sorry. It was the yeast they had. It was the oh, yeast. Oh, man. Who cares? Oh, just, Boy, you're being polite. I'm. Well, yeah, we are. <laughs> We're on the radio. We have to be polite. That's really horrible wine That's writing. That's really horrible wine writing. And we'll have more of that for you every week. We should make this in an annual competition and have a grand award <laughs> winner at the end go. of the year. Oh, yes. Right. They're in the running. There, that, that was a good one. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We'll have more questions, some food and wine pairings, and another historic history moment when we return. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. There are a lot of reasons to love wine, and we think its connection to history is one of them. So we, every week, or almost every week, bring you something we call... Historic History Moments. And I'm going to ha- start with one because it sort of connects to what we were talking about earlier, which was uh, the screw caps and the closures. And yep. it's a major moment in history, but it's actually relatively recent history. In the year 2000, 1% of Australian wine was in screw caps. Mm-hmm. 1%. Yeah. Not long after, Tesco, which is the largest, largest grocery chain in the United Kingdom, right. and they are the fifth largest retailer on the planet at the moment, and, and only, a, only behind the Amazon or Walmart and a couple others. And a huge, huge market for Australian wine. A huge market for Australian wine. And they decided that they were getting a little tired of the wines crossing the ocean and, uh, and not coming out the way they wanted. So they said, you know what? We are only accepting wine in screw caps. In 2004, which is not much longer, four years, 70% of Australian wine was in screw caps. <laughs> the market has spoken. The market has spoken. That's, uh, I, I love that story because it just goes to show that, that's frank, whatever people talk about, talk about with art, you got to sell your wine. you got to sell uh, No matter stuff. how good it is, that's if you don't right. sell it, you don't stay in business. Well, mine comes from a little different direction because back in the late 1600s, people first discovered, until that point, they would always ship wine to their customers in barrel. Uh, And then the people would put the barrel in their cellar and they would pull out what they needed and the barrel would eventually empty out. And it was in the middle, late 1600s that they started figuring out, you know, if we put our wine in a bottle and we sealed it with a tight cork stopper, it would actually prevent air from getting to the wine. And it changed the style of wine forever. Because before then, they were making light, fruity wines that would live in a barrel for about a year and then be gone. And now all of a sudden, they're making big, intense wines that could last for years and years and years in a bottle. And it changed the quality of wine. And it really it was. And it really wasn't until almost the very early 17th, well, the 17th uh, century, right? Is that 1700s? 1700s. Six, yeah. right, you're right. Yeah. Early 1700s when this, this came about. So if you think about it, that you know, wine was wine really didn't last very long for for right. much of That's human right. existence, and and this notion of actually sealing the darn bottle. Now, was, my favorite uh, story of all is about this: is how they used to put the corks in the old champagne bottles, because of course in those days the bottles were hand blown. So we are now into cork time. So we this still, is yeah, late yeah. 1600s. Okay, bottles were hand blown. The corks were handmade, and they weren't particularly round. They were kind of a, they were they were a, a tube, but they were more octagonal than perfectly round. But that's okay. Cork has a lot of spring to it, you know. So you, so the guys whose job it was to put the cork in the champagne bottle would take the champagne bottle and rest it on the bench between their legs. Now remember, champagne bottles explode all the time. Oh yeah. 
rest the cork, the champagne bottle between their legs, take the cork, hold it in one hand and squeeze it, and with their other hand, hammer the cork into the bottle. Ooh. Ooh. Now, they did wear some leather protection, but I'm sorry. That just strikes me as being something that OSHA would never uh, approve of today. Safety goggles and, and athletic <laughs> cops probably didn't exist at the time. That is a... Aye, 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 yeah, aye, aye. The, Those were the days. Wouldn't it be great to live in the 1700s? Yeah, no. yeah, that's, they lost. yeah. They talk about things like, you know, plague. But yes. what, what they don't talk about is Working death conditions. by champagne bottle, <laughs> That's right. which there, was, there were probably plenty of them. You know, uh, I want to get back to the um, the Tesco story for for just a second because I don't want to go you know spend a, a whole lot of time on this. But one of the things that I think is often um, uh, forgotten and sometimes criticized unfairly, which is the fact that. If you are a winery of any size, meaning more than a couple hundred bottles or a couple hundred cases, mm. you need to sell your wine. Mm-hmm. And there is right. this thing, you know, it's like that that often wineries are uh, criticized for being somewhat commercial, for, for, for bending to public tastes. And I understand the notion that wine should be pure, that you should make it. But not everyone can do that. If you don't stay in business, you can't sell Wait, did, is, your wine. Did someone bring a soapbox in here? Yes. Yes. Oh, it's, okay. uh, it's why you can see me over the table because I'm actually <laughs> standing on it. But I do think that it is I, – I think that one of the unfair criticisms that a lot of wineries take is that they, that, is that they are – Commercial. Well, the really funny one is when they're too successful. Right. Well, being successful will not make you popular with a wine writer. No, but being successful means that you've obviously sold your soul to the devil. Right. And yeah, right. It turns out maybe you just made a right. really good wine. It's that entirely like to possible. Buy. Right. Anyway, so <laughs> oh, well. you know, success and size does not necessarily make you a bad winery, and does not necessarily make you a good one either. That's all. That's I'm right. All right, you're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, more questions from our listeners. And next week, that could be you. You may just email us at rickandpaulwine.com. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We're going back to our mailbag. And by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question for the air, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. This one comes from Carrie Duncan in Roseville. I kind of like her spunk. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We don't really call guys with spunk. We call women spunky. And so I just say I like her chutzpah. How's that? Okay. I invite my boyfriend over for dinner, and he says he wants to bring the wine. He shows up with two buck chuck. Should I just dump him now? Yes, Carrie, you should. And 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 I'm serious. I'm not joking about that, Carrie. Here's a guy who volunteers to bring you wine. You don't ask him to bring the wine. I would perfectly understand how some guy who doesn't know anything gets told by the lady of his life, okay, your job is to bring the wine. And he says, I have no idea what to do. Walks into a yes. place, buys a bottle of two buck chuck, walks in and says, I don't know, is this any good? Totally he volunteered to so bring the wine. So he's showing off is what he's doing. He is sending you a message, Carrie, and the I'm message is, ay, 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 you're cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not even that. It's it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing because I am not I'm we neither one of us are the kinds of people that rag on two buck chuck. Right. I, I have my issues with it in for some other complicated reasons. And it has to do with people I like and don't like in the wine business. But the wine itself for somebody going into a Trader Joe's and buying a, two, a Charles Shaw Chardonnay. Why not? Having said that, when there when when you're trying to look good, 
I think that it what it brings up it, what my reaction to this was was here's a guy trying to look good by showing you how cheap I See, am. I, I'm, I'm I wonder how good person. he's trying to look because he's no. showing up with a cheap bottle of wine. See, and every and it's here's the weird part, Rick. He's not even showing up with an inexpensive bottle of wine that nobody's ever heard of. Because I could understand him walking in with another bottle of wine that doesn't cost very much and saying, "Here's what I brought." Who knows? Could be a special secret find. But when he brings the wine that everybody knows is inexpensive, he is sending a message here. Yeah, and it may it may also be that I'm too cool for school and I'm not getting sucked into this. And you know, but let me just say this, Carrie. We're not people who think that you should really judge your boyfriends by the wine that they carry. However, you already seem to have a question about him to begin with. And so <laughs> And to us that question was answered. Yeah, we we so I we say get Again, rid of him. If he hadn't volunteered, yeah. different story. But the guy who volunteers and then shows up with that, he's telling you something. Plus I can just sense in your email that you're looking for an excuse to get rid of him anyway. <laughs> All right. Oh man. Edward Mallory in Green Bay says, I'm kinda new to wine. What's the difference in regions if they're using the same grape? What makes them different? That's actually that's a great question. That's a good question, Edward. And, and even people who aren't new to wine uh, ask that question as well. Many, many things is probably the first place to start. Well, yeah, just about everything. Right, right. So you got you got to obviously talk about, think about growing tomatoes in your backyard. Okay, I'm thinking about it. Okay. Now you I can, know I can see the snail holes in the leaves. Oh well, now you've got a problem. You got to get rid of this. Okay, snails. so we're not my yard. Somebody else's. Somebody yard. else's okay, yard. With I'm no back. Snails. I'm with you now. Okay, and he's got some plants that are up against the back fence, and he's got some plants that are further out towards the lawn. And he knows that the ban- the plants back against the fence get more heat, so those tomatoes ripen a little earlier. That's the same thing that happens in a wine region. Some regions are a little warmer. The grapes get ripe a little sooner. Some are a little cooler. They don't get as ripe. So you got the climate. Climate is one thing that's different between one region and another. And watering in that backyard. Okay, Paul, I I need to say this, and I'm going to regret it later. I'm a little dazzled with the brilliance of that metaphor, because it's a really good one, and and I didn't expect it from you. (laughs) Well, you know, every once in a while. No, but that's exactly right, because that's a really simple way to to, to think about it, is just in terms of— your own yard because yep. yeah because it's the air the soils all sorts of well, things. well we didn't talk about the soil because the right. soil's another element right, right you know right. and obviously the same thing to tomatoes you know or uh, there's a patch of your lawn that always grows better why does it grow better because the previous owner had a rabbit hutch over that lawn and there's 20 you, years of rabbit fertilizer which over you in that. May, or, may or may not want to know when you're thinking well, about yeah, your tomatoes. Yeah, but look at the grass That's over there. True. It's, it's beautiful-looking yeah. grass. So yeah. that happened. But I'm going to argue that perhaps the most important thing is the culture. In your and backyard? I, and I don't just— See, your metaphor is falling apart. No, I'm it'll, thinking work, it, it'll work perfectly. I'm thinking it's the same culture of both parts of the yard. It'll work perfectly because on one part of the yard, it's your vegetable garden. And another part of your yard, you've got an ornamental Japanese garden. And they look different even though they're in the same yard. Two different people, two different visions of what should happen. All of those things affect wines of a different region. Well— Okay. I'll buy it. I'll buy it there. Are you are you I'll, with I'll me? I'll pay a little bit of it that sure. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I'm I'm the ornamental. You threw me with the ornamental Japanese garden because You weren't expecting that. I was not expecting See that. See that? Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. It's, life is not all tomatoes, so, right? So Sometimes it, it's mugu pines. <laughs> this is uh <laughs> this is the takeaway this week. Life is not all tomatoes. <laughs> all right. So I hope that's a little bit of help. We can go deep into things like soils and and 
and all kinds of stuff. But basically, there's so much different in everything else yeah. in the region is what it comes down to. Yeah, and, and it does make a difference in how the wine tastes. Now, what difference is applied to which part of things? That's something that you could argue for the rest of our lives because there are people who really believe in this stuff and there are people who believe ultimately that mainly it's the guy making the wine that has the biggest impact. That's probably true. That is probably true. All right, our last one for the for this mailbag session comes from Gloria Pham in Santa Rosa, and she asks a very simple question is, are mail-order wine clubs worth it? So I thinking what she's talking about is the ones that she's getting online, not the um, not, not the, the wine clubs, wine from wine club. clubs, which is a different discussion for a different time. Right. Mail order wine clubs. Well, that's a really good question. If you know the price of the wine, and this is the thing, if you know the price of the wines, sometimes you will recognize good deals. And if you know the price of the wine, sometimes you will recognize that you're being taken. It really does, because I, you know, I don't know about you, Paul, but I just happen to have gotten on a lot of lists, and I stay on them just to see what the, what's out there. So I probably have when seven. When you drink as much as you do, Rick, you're you going to be on need, a lot of lists. I, I need a supplier. That's true. It's true. But you know, one of the things I've noticed is that there's no consistency with even the the sites that sites that can often have some very good deals can also have some not very good deals. Right. And so that right. it isn't just one site or another. Well. And, you know, you run into this situation, why do people join a wine club? And the answer is, well, they want to, to explore get wine. wine. Well, yeah, but, you know, why wouldn't they go but, to the local shop? Right. Well, okay. Now, where – I'm sorry. I've forgotten where she's from. She is from Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa. So she has there's access a to plenty, wonderful, right? The, first of all, there's there are wonderful wine stores in Santa Rosa. Could she not develop an ongoing relationship with her local retailer who would not only send her wines that she would like but ultimately listen to what she liked and start handpicking wines so that she only gets wines she really likes and she knows she's paying flat retail? for all of them, that would be the best solution. Now, if she lives in a far-off corner of Elko, Nevada, where there might not be a fine wine store, then joining some of these online wine clubs are really good ways of trying to explore a little bit in terms of the world of wine. What you're doing in that case when you buy the wine club is you are trusting the buyer. You are giving the buyer the benefit of the doubt to say, I trust you to pick wines that I'm going to like. My favorite ones are if you've got an online retailer, the oldwine.com used to do this very effectively, where you could actually file your flavor profile the way you do for Amazon. You know, people mm -hmm. who like this book would also like that book. And then they would start picking wines for so you based you, on what you, get, you liked. You get wines with mystery and a, and a note of suspense. That's right. <laughs> well, but at the same time, you know, to me, to me, there is less value in joining a wine club that simply says we've got your credit right. card and every month we're going to ship you two bottles of wine whether you like them or not. Right. Eh, that does. I would rather have the conversation. I'd rather go to a wine shop and have that wine shop tell me when I go in the next day, I didn't like this red wine. Why? It tasted really bitter to me. Good to know. Let me find you a red wine that doesn't have that flavor, and I'm going to let you have that one next. Then you're going to have some fun. Yeah, and I think that obviously in the well, we don't know, we don't know you, Gloria, but uh, you are uh, the worth it part. I think is what you're talking about is the the price side of it, right? And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. But you're gonna you're gonna have more consistent results with your getting your value out of your money by, as Paul said, going to a place where they can tell you something about it. And and if in, you've got one nearby, and in, well, if Santa, you've got yeah, one if you nearby, are, if you if you uh, live actually in the town of Santa Rosa, there are plenty. Yeah. You, you will find plenty. Yeah. We have another question from this one is from Reggie Christensen in Santa Barbara. Pretty simple question. What are legs? What do they mean? 
Well, okay. well. Start at your waist. Those two things hanging down, those are your legs. Yes, and if, you, if you're going to run, you're going to need at least one of them. They go all the way to yeah. the ground. But if you're talking about wine legs, yeah. which I'm guessing you are, Reggie, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote uh, Karen McNeil, the uh, author of the Wine Bible, uh, and a friend of both Paul and mine, and she says the legs on wine, like on a woman, on a woman, have no bearing on quality. Okay, and I'm gonna say first of all, let's define what legs are. When Reggie's swirling his glass there, the way they teach you in sommelier school, and they swirl it and swirl it and swirl it, then you hold the glass up to the light so that you look like Robert Mondavi. You'll notice coming down the edges of the glass, the sides of the glass, will be these long streamers. Some people call them tears. Tears. You hear tears, tears from the guys taking the psalm tests. Right. They call them tears. And those actually indicate, technically, they indicate the relative viscosity of the wine. How thick is the wine? And there's one thing that folks use them for, although it's really, it, it, it applies, it can apply to other things, but it's the amount of alcohol in the wine because... Alcohol adds to the viscosity, and so right. when when guys are taking tests and they'll they'll look at them, but that only matters in relationship look, to the rest a, of the there's wine. There's a real easy way to figure out what the texture of the wine is. Put Taste it in it. your mouth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You swirl it around. If it feels rich and full, it's big bodied. If it doesn't, by the way, another thing that adds to the legs is sugar. Yeah. So you can have a wine with low alcohol and high sugar. It'll still have lots of legs. And if it spends some time in oak, that's going to get some viscosity from that. So all of those things play a role, but none of them matter as much as what the wine is actually doing in your mouth. Yeah, and but you're not going to like if you are. You've got three friends, and they are walking around a party, and they're swirling their wine. And God help you if this is the party that you go to. Oh, but my God. I'm just saying. Don't gonna, invite us to that you one. you are going <laughs> to steal someone's wine. The size of the legs are not going to make any difference to whether the wine's any good or not. That's right. That's it, right. Yeah. It does actually come from a long-standing. Remember that wine culture comes from Europe. Remember that in general in Europe they grow grapes in cooler climates than we do. The grapes don't get as ripe. So that in the old days in Europe they used to say a good year was a year when the grapes got ripe, which meant that the wine would have bigger legs. But in California, grapes get ripe. It's part of what we do here. All the wines have big legs, and all it tells you is. That you have spent way too much time watching movies about sommeliers, you should be drinking more. So, so fundamentally, uh, if we're talking about the good old days, the legs on a wine, like the legs on a sprinter, need to be big and robust. Never mind, that was, okay. was not going anywhere there. Okay. All right, we're moving on. <laughs> All right, we are zipping up the mailbag and moving on. If you'd like to ask us a question. We will answer it on the air, and you can go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you coming from one more question. We'll be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it is time for our food and wine pairing, but we actually have an question, an email from Nicole Dominguez in Fresno. So we're going to make her question our food and wine pairing for today. She asks, what's the best wine to complement Mexican food, such as tacos and the like, and why? Hmm. Well, this is a tough one, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna go in two different directions. Yes. So my first question, my first answer is beer. 
Of course, there's yeah. a reason for the spiciness, and, and it actually yeah. because it, it takes care, yeah. it helps the, the spiciness. But if you are into the cheesy, less spicy versions, which is really what how my writing has been described, as <laughs> I have had sort of you know a gentle cabernets and merlots with um, with the, and the dustiness of them have actually gone just huh. fine with some. So the next, not the spicy stuff, not the high. Okay, pepper. so I'm going to go to the other yeah. end of the spectrum because, man, I'm when I the the Mexican food I eat, which is cooked by people who are wonderfully. You're saying I'm eating junk, aren't you? <clears throat> no, no, no. I'm, I'm saying that the people who who serve Mexican food to me um, enjoy the high end of the spicy spectrum. Ah. Um, and so the big issue in your mouth is that you have napalm on your tongue. Yeah. What do you do about it? And in that case, go for. Yes, you've heard of the champagne of bottled beers. Well, champagne is mm -hmm. the beer of wines. Absolutely. So go with a bubbly, uh, Franciacorta, Prosecco, uh, California Sparkling, Champagne. It, they all work quite well. And the other one, since you want to go with Cabernet Sauvignon, I will go with something that's going to shock our listeners because I think the best single still wine with Mexican food is White Zinfandel, and it's fabulous. I'm shocked. I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that's oh, a now really, I'm shocked. No, well, yeah, <laughs> and anybody who knows us would be shocked too. But of course, that makes total sense. There's a light bit of sweetness, light bit of sweetness, yep. sometimes a little bit of spritz, low alcohol, refreshing, lively, delicious wine with with Mexican food. See, you listen to Rick and Paul, and you get all kinds of weird stuff. You know? and that is it for another round of Bottle Talk. Uh, it's Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. If you'd like to ask us a question. We will answer it on the show. You just need to go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, rickandpaulwine.com. We'll always be nice when you ask a question, we promise. Yes, we won't be nice with each other, but with your questions, we'll be nice. And if you've learned anything, it's white Zinfandel. What the heck? Give it a shot if you like it. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.